take a Bible, there's Bibles in the pews, and turn to the book of Titus, T-I-T-U-S, Titus. Don't you think they have funny names in the Bible? Sometimes I ask them to read Scripture in my class, and then I think, "Uh uh-oh, I've got to read some of those difficult names. So where's Titus? And of course, the question is, where's 2 Timothy? We're on page 1859 in the Bibles in the pews, 1859, towards the back of your New Testament and after the books of Timothy. And we're going to be going through the verse, uh, first eight verses of chapter 3. I especially want to mention verse 5 and spend a little bit more time on verse, verse 5. But before we open the Word, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious God, we thank You this morning for being the God of not just this world, but the whole universe. And if there are are multi-universes, Lord, them as well. All of life, all of creation. We thank you for that. We thank you for the recreation. The fact that men and women, boys and girls, can be remade in the image of Jesus. We can be converted, born again, renewed. And we know, Lord, this is the the glorious work of your Holy Spirit. So as we speak about um, his ministry this morning, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit will be here to touch each heart, help us to realize what is important in life, and run with that. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. Again, as I did earlier, I'd like to thank those that are visiting today. And we have a number of people. You're all welcome to stay after the service and eat with us. Okay, what do you know about the book of Titus? Well, the little book of Titus... Just a few, few brief chapters, but it, um, it's, it's taking place on the island of Crete. Anyone ever visited Crete? Raise your hand. Yes, some of you have. Good. So this should be a little bit special for you, hopefully, this morning. Looks like the Apostle Paul had visited Crete, and as he, as he normally did, Wherever he would go, he was a church planter. That was one of his gifts. And so he would gather people together, probably preach to them, and, and an audience would form, and they would look on that as the work of the Holy Spirit. They'd gather these few people together, and eventually, hopefully, their numbers would grow. But as, uh, as is often the case, Satan doesn't uh, relinquish his turf easily. And so heresies and false teachings would come, up, come in. And this is, a, this is a recurring pattern that you see in the early Christian churches. So in that sense, it's nothing new. So there is something called the Cretan heresy or wrong teaching. Another thing that we should know about this ministry of Titus, who was a non-Jew, a Gentile, who seemed to have been a, a good help to the Apostle Paul, so, so he wanted Titus to stay on the island and to, to guide the flock on the island. Was This Gentile man had to deal with some 
some difficult people. For example, if you look near the very beginning of the book of Titus, it mentions, um, let's pick it up um, in verse 10. There are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, Titus 1, 10, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. So this is wrong, false teaching that is coming into this little church, and that of the sake, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So they're not only teaching wrong things, they're doing it to rip people off. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply. Now, I don't know if, any, if you'd like anyone to talk that way about you, but this seems to have been the mindset on the island of Crete. So, everywhere where the gospel would go, whether it would be in Corinth, which was a very promiscuous place, then you'll find the Apostle Paul, who first was a pastor before he was anything else, uh, before he was ever a theologian, he was, he was a pastor. And he's a pastor writing to try and help these local congregations. And the amazing thing is that his, his letters, or at least some of them, were inspired, were preserved, and found their way in our Bible. And so he's giving advice to Titus on rebuking these false teachings uh, dealing with these false teachers, and, and laying an emphasis on doing good. So if I had to find uh, a heading here in my Bible, it is doing what is good. So doing good uh, fits very, very well. Uh, it's one thing, however, to be told what you're supposed to be doing. So if you read the earlier chapters, you'd see, for example, they would say, well, um, do good to your fellow man, obey the authorities who are in charge, and basically be a good citizen. But if you're going to do it from the heart, as we learned earlier in our Bible study, then you really need the Holy Spirit of God. And so the, there is a background text that um, keep your finger in Titus, and turn to the book of Ezekiel. I'm not going to say very much about Ezekiel, but I do want to draw it to your attention. Because it could very well be that this is a background text that the New Testament writers had in mind when they would talk about a new heart, an infilling of the Holy Spirit, a new covenant, and so on and so forth. Now with the new covenant, we would go to Jeremiah. It's because there's a very clear passage in Jeremiah on the New Covenant. But this is a very interesting passage here. In what, did I, what book did I say? Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25. So we are on page uh, 1345 in the Pew Bibles. And if you get nothing else uh, from the sermon this morning, you will at least have been able to find, hopefully, a few books in the Bible. 
All right, Ezekiel chapter 36, commencing at verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So there's the, what I think is the Old Testament background, especially to verse 5, which I'm going to spend some time on this morning, in the book of Titus. Okay, let's go back to Titus and go through it verse by verse. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. Question, does that include Barack Obama? To be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility to all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So that's just a few people in society liking Crete, right? No. Who does it include? Includes everybody. So when we go to a book like Romans and we read all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, well here it is being spelt out in different ways. Same point being made that we are all sinners and we all fall short of the standard of God. It's like one of the first lessons you should learn when you're reading the Bible. That God is there, the Holy One, the Most Holy One, and we are here the most unholy one. And if we only examine our own hearts, or if the Spirit of God does that to us, then like Isaiah, we say, woe is me! I am a man undone, because my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts, the God of glory. That was a really good thing to happen in Isaiah's life. It's one of the reasons he became a great prophet like he did. If you want to be a strong Christian, then that's first base. Realizing your true condition. And the one who realizes their sinful condition hopefully will flee to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of mankind, and find somebody that can deal with their sin problem. When God gives His law before Jesus came in the flesh, when God gave His law, same purpose. To show the people how far short of the holiness of God they really came, and then go to Him and ask for cleansing. So, this is what we were, he says, to these believers in Crete. At one time, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now you might say, well, I've never really hated 
another. I've never really slandered anybody. Really? Have you ever been angry with someone without just cause? Reality is, when we really dig, which is not what we're doing this morning, when we really dig into the requirements of God, we find, at least in spirit, if not in action, we have all committed these sins in some way, shape, or form. Of course, Jesus, when he was talking about living what the Christian life is all about, he says, if you're lusting after someone that's not your wife, after another woman or another man, you have committed sin. So sin is obviously way more than just our actions, than what we do. It's what we are within that is the problem. And we chase all sorts of false rabbits and wonder why we're confused in life. So if you want direction in life, if you want to know the meaning of life and the purpose of life, then this is one of the first things you do. Examine yourself in the light, not of society, not in the light of, of fellow church members, because it's very easy to then think that you're a little bit better than some of the scourge of society. Right? You don't compare yourself with, with other human beings. You compare yourself to the, to the godly standard, the standard that God has, the standard in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we have another account there that reminds me very much of what Titus says. Galatians, Ephesians, that's on page 1819. And he says there, as for you, so this is another group of Christians, but living in a place called Ephesus. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So not only were you committing these things, you were spiritually dead. Clueless. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us. Now think how religious Paul was before he was a Christian. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. The wrath of God comes down on such sin. It's not so much the wrath of God comes down on sins, plural, that's really not the way you're going to understand what the Bible writers are really trying to say. God has to destroy sin in all its shapes and forms. Don't we like to have those passages like in Isaiah, Revelation, where it talks of a new heavens and a new earth and a recreation? Don't you love to hear sermons on those and think about those things? I mean, for some people, the hand that they've been dealt with in this life, some people live in slums their whole life. Some children and their parents, that's the only way they get a living is by going through the, the local trash dump in places like India and salvaging what they can. That's all they know. And some, for many of them, will never get out of the trash dump. 
Well, God has taken us out of the trash dump if we're a Christian. He's taken us, he's dealt with sin in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians and in uh, Titus, you have a similar thought there. For example, in verse 4 of, uh, of Titus, but when, verse 4, but when, or in Ephesians 2, um, verse 4, but because of his great love for us. It's like Paul paints the picture of what you used to be, Ephesus, Titus, many of his books, the same thing, Romans. But now, God has done something. So we paint the negative picture. If we don't paint the negative picture, people don't respond to the positive. If you don't point out what sin is, people don't turn to a Savior. That doesn't mean say they don't turn to Jesus. They can turn to Jesus and follow a good humanitarian, a good example of, of what human beings should be. Follow a prophet. Or Judaism often thinks of Jesus follow, following a deluded man. There's lots of Jesuses out there that people follow. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking of, of a Messiah, a Jesus, who is a Savior from sin. It's a big difference. So, but because, but when, and then he talks about... Um, when the, what the Jesus did. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, Titus 3, verse 4, He saved us, not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of His mercy. I often wonder, why does Paul add those extra phrases? Why didn't he just say, but, but when or but because Jesus did die for us, or did this, that, and the other for us, and then he adds on that little phrase, um, not because of any righteous things that we have done. Why do you think he does that? It's a style of teaching. For those of you that are teachers or that you want to be teachers or you're interested in that, notice the methodology of the Apostle Paul. He's often, he's often repeating himself. Now, when he repeats himself, he'll usually add things. So he doesn't just repeat and say the same thing. He will repeat the same idea and they may add one or two things here. But it's interesting to me, his style of doing it is he adds this little phrase, just so none of us get carried away with our own inflated egos, not because of any righteous things that we have done. Not in any way, shape, or form. Not the decisions we make, the choices we make, the lifestyle that we live, the things that we give up, none of that, none of those good stuff, that good stuff in our lives can we take any credit for. Because no matter how many good things we do, it's never going to be enough to bridge the gap between the holy God and sinful man. So what we, what we need are righteous acts that are absolutely 100% perfect. In word, thought, action, in every way. And only Jesus Christ, 
of all humanity has been able to do that. And so he is the only one that meets the holy requirements of a holy God. And you and I are in him. Now, this, that language is not used here. It is used in many other books of, of Paul that we are incorporated into Christ. Now, I don't, I don't know how you're going to get your head around that. You need to, for sure, because it's a huge, huge, massive teaching in the Bible. But it's the way that God treats you from that point on when you respond to the Lord Jesus Christ in whatever form that takes, whether it's something verbally that you said, something mental that has gone on in your head, something emotional that, that happened in your life. Each one of us, if we gave our conversion story, would package it differently, right? So the important thing is not the packaging, the important thing is that the reality has taken place. And it's very interesting, the language that Paul uses here, especially in verse 5. It's kind of unusual. That's why I've chosen this passage uh, this morning. I could easily have gone with those early chapters of Ephesians or the early chapters of Galatians and brought some of the same teaching out. But in verse 5, it's a little bit differently. So verse 4, when the kindness and love of God. That's the only reason why God has saved us. Right? Because of His kindness, is God kind? How kind is God? How kind is He? How much does He really love us? Does He love us enough to hang on a cross for us? Does he not love us enough to have the wrath of God poured on, on him? Yeah, not quite so sure on that one, but that's what the Bible teaches. Sin always has to be dealt with, so it's been dealt with in the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And whoever trusts in Jesus Christ is... Sometimes you have to think of yourself living inside the body of Jesus. So that when God sees you... He sees you in Christ. He doesn't see you in you. He sees you in Christ. It's a huge, big difference. But here at this point, it's His love, it's His kindness, displayed in the life, death, resurrection, probably heavenly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And many of us in this room understand that and have heard that many times and you will hear it until Jesus comes. Because it never changes. It's the old gospel story. Never, never changes. And then, and then he adds that little phrase on the end there. Um, he saved us in verse 5, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. So you can throw in mercy there. And here's the interesting text for me. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of this will depend on how the Greek expresses itself, and then, of course, you get these English translations. And if we compare different translations, it probably would um, rearrange some of these words a little bit differently. But it seems to me that this is, verse 5 is laying a big emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit. 
And that's something of Seventh-day Adventists we need to pay note of. We can't just let the Pentecostals and the Charismatics talk all about the Holy Spirit. Seventh-day Adventists have to be in there somewhere. Because the reality is, the very beginning of your spiritual life is all the work of the Holy Spirit. So, very, so many times we'll talk, especially in Paul's writings, he'll talk of Christ has done this and Christ has done that. But if you're really careful noticing Scripture, you will be amazed at how many times he mentions the Holy Spirit. And a lot of Bible scholars have totally missed that. So a few years ago, when one of those scholars brought a book out on Paul and the Holy Spirit, it sent kind of like shockwaves through the scholarly world because they were thinking, how did we miss that? How could this man have laid such an emphasis on the Holy Spirit and we never really caught it? So of course, if the Bible scholars are not really catching it, you, can better, you better believe the pastors are probably not catching it and the church members are not catching it. So what do we have here? Well, we have a salvation text, verse 5. Let me read it again. He saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. And here's, here's the passage. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now the Catholics have a field day with a text like that. And they'll take something like that and they'll find a way, by hook or by crook, they'll find a way, and some Protestants too, of getting that into baptism. After all, doesn't it say washing? Sprinkle some holy water on those little bit cute babies. Or baptize someone by immersion, and they're saved, right? Oh. Not necessarily, someone says. We all know that there are people, maybe even ourselves, who have been baptized and were never, ever renewed by the Holy Spirit. And actually, the word, one of the words that's used here in the Greek is the word we use for regeneration. Now, I don't know if that word means anything to you, but it means an awful lot to Bible scholars and pastors. It's a very key word in Scripture, yet it's not a word that's used very often. The Greek word is not used very often. When Jesus talks in the book of Matthew about the renewal of all things at the end of the age, that's the word that he uses. It's one of the very few places in the Bible that this word regeneration, he will regenerate, not just this world, the whole universe will be regenerated, right? And we will use words, we don't use the word regenerated, even though we could do, we will use renewed or remade or, or words to that effect. Well, that same word is used in Titus 3, verse 5. So, here's an, an interesting insight into the Holy Spirit. Now, remember who the Holy Spirit is. I mean, this is a big, huge, massive subject, and, and I probably do need to do a series on this sometime, but the Holy Spirit is... Uh, a power like electricity, right? Is that a good way of understanding the Holy Spirit? No, it's a bad way. Because before you talk of the power, you need to talk of the person. The person of the Holy Spirit. 
the third member of the Godhead of the Holy Spirit. The one who can be grieved. Can you grieve electricity and power? No. So you need personality. And that's what we have with the Holy Spirit. So God in His wisdom, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, before time began as we know it on this earth, had a plan. And the plan is... is uh, is actually explained in some parts of the Bible. You could say it's explained throughout the whole Bible, but it becomes much, much clearer in certain books of the Bible, like in Ephesians and, and books like that. So God has a plan. If mankind goes astray, then the plan kicks into operation. What is that plan? The Lord Jesus Christ would come. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a sense, would take on roles. I hate to say different roles, though that would be accurate to say that. It wasn't, I don't think we are to think of the Holy Spirit hanging on the cross or the Father hanging on the cross. It's Jesus hanging on the cross. That was his role, right? Even though the heart of the Father was on the cross, and it's probably not wrong to say the heart of the Holy Spirit was on the cross, because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are together in saving mankind. You don't want to ever separate that. But they have different roles. Separate roles. So Jesus would come from His glory and take human flesh. In a, in a sense, step down and as the writer of Philippians would say, and, and condescend to take human form. It's an amazing concept that God would, would do that. Not, not God's small g, as some want to teach, but God with big G takes the form, the human form, who, who we call the Lord Jesus Christ. So where does the Holy Spirit fit in? Well, in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes a big deal about the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's kind of like, sometimes I, I would wish I was there when he said it, because I think the disciples scratched their head and said, Holy who? Who is this Holy Spirit? And you know, Christians can talk the same way too. Read Acts chapter 19. There's a very interesting account there of people who had been baptized into the name of John. John the Baptist baptism. And Paul would come along and say, uh, well, have you heard about the Holy Spirit? Who? Didn't really understand. Didn't really understand the Gospel. Not in its fullness. They understood it partially. So that's one example, not many examples, but one example in the Bible of rebaptism. So what does the Holy Spirit, what's His role? Well, I think He has many roles. I think He's the one who comes tapping on the door of your conscience. I was talking with some of you about that recently when I was out swimming once and suddenly, suddenly, um, before I was a Christian, I was swimming and I suddenly got cramp. And I'm in a large body of water and there's only one way, and that's down. And that didn't appeal to me somehow. So then this ungodly young man, his mind is going out to God. 
or being chased by the police and some, some gang of guys, and I'm hiding away in a dark alley, even covering my mouth so they couldn't hear my breathing. That's one of those foxhole moments when you feel your life is on the line. And it's amazing who comes knocking on your door in those times. I believe that's all the work of the Holy Spirit. And yes, He's doing it on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ who was doing His ministry on behalf of the Father, but they're all working together. So the Holy Spirit comes and He convicts. That's a very large part of His ministry. But He also converts. Now it could well be that some who are convicted are not converted. But somebody who is convicted and responds is converted. And sometimes it might seem that they're not really responding, they're, they're being dragged into the kingdom. C.S. Lewis, Malcolm Muggeridge, and some other very famous people in history. But the point is, they get convicted in some way, shape, or form, and then they find the Savior, and then they're converted. And that converting process is what I believe he is talking about here in this particular language, the way that he phrases it. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I don't really believe at all it's talking about baptism. Baptism really, whether it is or not, I doubt that it is, but baptism is, is a washing, in, like a visible washing. It's something you see and feel if you're the candidate. It's something that the audience sees. But the real washing has already taken place. So people that get baptized and are not saved have never been spiritually washed. Don't you like that metaphor? Because if the metaphor for sin is dirt, it's dirt, it's filthy rags. There's nothing nice about it. And how nice it feels when you get it, you're, you've been working in the garden or a, or a dust cloud has come over, you've been taking a vacation in Arizona, did you see some of those dust clouds that came through there in the news? And you're, everything's just covered in dirt. I mean, it's everywhere. It's up your nostrils, it's everywhere. That's what sin's like. And that's the kind of understanding that God wants us to have. Sin is in the warp and the woof of the human being. It affects everything that we think and that we say that we do. Everything. And then some force, some power of God, actually the presence of God, that's a, that's a better way of looking at the Holy Spirit rather than just talk of Him as power, where then we can kind of keep Him at arm's length. Let's talk of Him as presence. And those of you that are coming on Tuesday, which by the way isn't very many of you, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more, are learning from the sanctuary on how to approach God. Because that was one of the main reasons that God set up the sanctuary system. The whole reason He set up this plan of salvation is so that sinful man can learn how to approach a holy God. So here with the Holy Spirit, you know, the psalmist says in the Psalms, whither shall I flee from your presence? If I go here, if I go there, you're there. 
Well, think of that in terms of the Holy Spirit in the conversion process. In the beginnings of the Christian life, it's the work of the precious third person of the Godhead who, as our text says, washes us in rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And I don't think we have to separate them. I don't see any advantage in doing that, even though I do believe that at rebirth, in conversion, down the line, for example, let me give you my own example, see if that makes any sense to you. When I was converted, I felt this tremendous presence of, of which I now realize was the Spirit of God. To me, it was just God, some nebulous God. A tremendous sense of peace. A tremendous sense of oneness with God. How many of you have experienced that? Okay, not so many. So maybe this is meaningful what I'm going to say this morning. Now, we don't all experience the presence of God the same way. So we have to be careful there. So for me, let's say it was a very peaceful experience, or let's say for someone else it was a very highly emotional experience where they were weeping and, and so on and so forth. I, I wouldn't lay a lot of emphasis on that, except to say, when he enters, you know it. It is experiential. And I think this is why Paul includes it the way he does. Because he's going to say in just a, a few verses who were justified. And we never talk of justification in the context of the Holy Spirit, do we? And we always talk of justification in the context of the courtroom. But here, he's laying an emphasis on washing the experiential part of our Christian. And if you've not had that, I doubt that you're a Christian. That's a strong statement. Maybe you can pick up your Bible and show me where I'm wrong. I'd encourage you to, to try and do that if, if this is something that bothers you. But it seems to me, I don't know how you can live your Christian life without feeling a sense of His presence. Without experientially being in love. We love Him. Why? Didn't we just read about the kindness and love of God? So if we jump right over into the epistles of John, if we had time to do that, then that's what we would find. We love Him because first, He loved God. Is love... Does love include feelings? Any passion out there this morning? Does love include feelings? Big time. It's not the only thing, but it's an important component. And so I believe with the Holy Spirit, we should be having not just initially, at the moment of rebirth, this experience in the Holy Ghost, sensing the presence of God, feeling the power of God, or whatever way He might manifest Himself to you. And I'm sure that's a very complex thing depending on the way that we're wired, depending upon our culture even. The Spirit of God. God reveals Himself according to culture. Just read the Old Testament to understand how He does that. But the point being, He will reveal Himself in a tangible way. You and I are not just to live our Christian life believing pie in the sky and pious promises that were made by prophets throughout time. 
you and I, yes, we believe those promises, but we also know that He lives within me. Didn't we actually sing the song, He lives? You like to play that one, John? You like that hymn? He lives. How do you know? Oh, they like it. I know that. They did. How do you know He lives? He lives within my heart. How subjective is that? How experiential is that? Alright, let's finish this off. Rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He sprinkled out on us. Is that what it says? Buckets. Buckets. Waterfalls. Any of you seeing any good waterfalls? We should have a lot of waterfalls in North America with all the rain that we've had in some places. Maybe not Texas, but certainly here, places on the West Coast. So He engulfed us. Romans 5.5. It's an important verse. Look at that. Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out the same phrase. I don't know if it's the same Greek word. It probably is. Poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. A very similar verse there in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. The Holy Spirit poured out in an experiential way in our lives so that we know we can feel the kindness of God. We can feel the love of God. Jesus' death on the cross is not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's very real for us now. Christ in you. The hope of glory. And of course, this will be a tremendous um, encouragement to you when times get tough, when the sa Satan goes on the warpath and attacks you. Anyone been attacked lately? Just one? Is there only one pious one amongst us? He's, we're involved in a warfare. He's seeking whom he might devour. He's on the warpath, so to speak. So every day, we need to, to put on this spiritual armor of God. And this is very much an important component of that. If you, if you felt God wrapping His arms around you, then probably you'll never ever doubt God in your life. As little faith as I've had at times, there's never been a time when I've doubted God. Because God has re revealed Himself to me at Bethel, so to speak. Whoa, I've seen the face of God. I felt His presence. You know He's real. It's not if, but maybe. If I'm good enough, maybe I'll make it. It's God is in control of my life. He initiated it, not me. He called me. He converted me, and He will keep me. Jesus says all of those things. Paul says all of those things. Why should I doubt them? My job is to learn to trust. My job is to learn to grow. My job is to learn to be sensitive to that still small voice of the Holy Spirit and walk in the Spirit at all times. That's my work as a Christian, or certainly a very important part of my work. So He put His love out on us, or His grace on us, generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace... This is so unusual to find this 
justification language after the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, you could say it, it's implied when it talked about Jesus loving and, and being kind to us, our Savior, in verse 4. But it's very unusual to find this arrangement. Don't you wish that the Bible was like, uh, what are those manuals? Dumb, dumber, and what are those manuals called? Yeah, that's it. Give me a Bible for dummies. Where it's just spell out so easily. And justification always comes before uh, new creation. But it's not so here. And God has not given us a Bible like that. We do have, if you're really going to get a hold of it, you've really got to compare Scripture with Scripture if you're really going to get the teaching down. So that having been justified by His grace, verse 7, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. I want you to stress these things. So if there are elders here this morning, which I know there are, this is addressed to you. It's addressed to me. And in a sense, it's addressed to all of us. We have to stress sound doctrine, sound teaching. Because if we don't, something will come along to fill the vacuum. And we call that heresy. And here it would be the Cretan heresy. So I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. There it is again. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And then he goes on to talk about, I'm not going to go into that for the sake of time, but then he goes into, what do you do with a quarrelsome person? Well, that's nothing new, is it? Don't you find those uh, pastors or those church members that just get in your face? Well, you don't have to put up with that. Praise God. The Bible is very practical. So it says, explain things to them once. Hey, do it twice. And after that, put them on the shelf. Because we can waste so much time. So much time. I had a guy who came to my house. He illustrates this so well. But I have to be careful how I say it because he might listen to this recording one day. And I'm really not trying to insult him. He was a very nice Seventh-day Adventist. But he came to my house once to do, do some, to deliver something. And, and when he found out I was a Seventh-day Adventist, which didn't take long, um, he gave me the, one of the weirdest Bible studies I've ever had in my life. And, and I'm not sure what he was really trying to prove. But whatever it was, it didn't work. And to me, it was a classic example of majoring on the minor. And we need to be caught, even when we're talking about the sanctuary, we can get caught up so much in this item and that item that we never see Jesus. So it, it can be very religious. The genealogies and all of that, they were all in the context. I mean, you have a, don't you have a lot of genealogies in the Bible? That was a huge thing in Jewish life. And it still is with certain groups like Mormons. Many people like to do their genealogies. We all want to figure out our roots. So, and of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you make that the big thing, and especially 
make it a substitute for the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel and how to live a profitable life and spend your time on genealogies and, and discussions that are irrelevant at the end of the day, nothing practical, then that is condemned in Scripture. And so you, those of you that are elders, in the next few verses, you have material on how to deal with these very, very difficult type of people. Don't you love the Bible? I just love to dig in. I wasn't sure that I should run with Titus, but at the last minute I says, okay, jump in, Terry. Have a little bit of faith here. And, and uh, didn't do as much research as I usually do, but jump in there and let's see if God can do something with it. And I believe that he did. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you. Be with these people here this morning. And Lord, if I ask for anything, I ask for a real anointing of the Holy Spirit upon each one of them. I want boys and girls to grow up knowing that you're real, Lord. I don't want them hearing Bible stories and then seemingly when they become teenagers just forget all about that stuff as though it's childish. I want you to be real in their lives. I want them to have answered prayer. I want them to see miracles. I want them to know that you're real. And of course, for the adults, Lord, we ask for the same thing too. Uh, some of us are just going through the motions because we don't know anything else to do. But Lord, I pray that that will not be the case from this point on, that each one of us will, will listen to that voice of the Holy Spirit, we will respond when He comes a-knocking, and that He will do His converting work in our lives, and that we will have constantly fresh outpourings in the Holy Spirit. Lord, we look at our church in the, in the world, and in some places it's growing so fast, and it seems that Your Spirit is is doing amazing things. And in other places, it seems so cold. And so few seem to be responding. Lord, we pray for worldwide revival. Worldwide moving of Your Holy Spirit. We want Christ to come. We know this has to happen before Jesus Christ comes. Take us, Lord, individually. We thank You for the washing so much. We like that metaphor it just just has a ring about it, Lord, that, that appeals so much. Continue to wash us. Continue to renew us. Continue to revive us and regenerate us until Jesus Christ and we see Him in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And we hear from His lips, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. May the joy start now as we are anointed with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, we praise You and thank You. Amen.